Dear Chavrut of mine, she was 96 years old, she passed away this morning. Um, so, at least Neshama to her, Mahavah Bakler. And uh, tonight's um, learning will be dedicated in her memory, and as well as the mother of Tehillah Brooks, who's sponsoring the series. Her name is Dina Bat Shaya, which will be obvious Neshama to them both. Tonight's year uh, is an update really in the current events, but what it really is is an update in what I believe is the messianic process. And that's really what it's all about, you know. Um, I've given many shurim on that topic. Uh, if anybody wants to see all of that, I think there are about 50 of them. Um, uh, they can look at my website, which is torahthinking.com. Or they can look at Torah anytime. I'm also on YouTube. That's most people watch me on YouTube. Uh, I'm also on Kolaloshin, uh, and I'm also on the OU website. But the best place probably is YouTube or TorahThinking.com. Any case. <clears throat> so uh, obviously, there's a, a great deal happening. Um, previous couple of years. And it's not only that, but there's uh, tremendous things happening even now. And what's interesting is that, <clears throat> to my mind, I don't think most people realize what is happening and what the severe consequences can be. Uh, now, my perspective is from the messianic process. I'm not interested in the politics, per se except as it moves the whole um, period of uh, the Mashiach. That's really the entire interest, you know. I think uh, most people are interested in that, not in the particular political situation, uh, per se. So the question that I want to ask is, <coughs> where are we in the Messianic process? Which is a good question to ask. Where exactly do we stand? <coughs> are we closer? Are we further away? Uh, do we see any obstacles coming? And that's really a very important question. So that's the first thing I would like to deal with. Um, but in order to understand that, in order to understand that, you need to understand the current events itself, obviously. But in order to understand that, you need to understand certain basic concepts. Remember, uh, the Messianic process which is obviously the coming of the Mashiach, it is the Geula itself, the redemption, which is the end of mankind. Uh, you know, uh, it is the end of the entire experiment, if I can use that word, that God has uh, initiated uh, to bring about specific objectives which he has in mind and which I will talk about. <clears throat> but the idea is that in order to understand this process, you really have to know about uh, the process. What exactly occurs? in this process and then once you understand that then you can begin to understand what is called the actual the current events which is the uh, ideas the events of course of the 21st century so i'm going to uh, speak uh, a certain amount actually a, a, a very important amount on some of the basic concepts that you must understand before you be given, even begin to understand 
today's time. Now I'm going to specifically talk a lot about the Israeli political situation because I view that as the most important right now. Trump's got his hands tied. You know, he's still doing good, he's doing well, and everybody probably knows I consider him to be a part of a messianic process. I have said that many, many times. And he's doing well. Uh, I understand he did very well with the State of the Union. He got very good marks, which of course has all the media and the left and the liberals going crazy. Uh, you know, and uh, uh, so he's doing, he's doing okay, but he's got his obstacles, and I mentioned why. Uh, which, of course, I may repeat. There are other things going on, but right now, what's I think the most important thing to understand, really from a basic framework, <coughs> and from a, <coughs> a profound hashkofic view, is what's happening in Israel. Very important, you know. So I'm going to present what I think is happening uh, and the significance of it, based on the hashkofa of God's agenda. I hope God forgives me, because uh, if I'm wrong, he's going to be annoyed. But uh, so far, I've been right, what can I say, you know? Uh, and maybe some of the information, maybe it's coming from God, who knows? You know, do we really know why we have ideas and why we think certain ways? Uh, a lot of it is inspired, is, is really produced by God himself. Anyway, <clears throat> now, so therefore, what is important to understand is that there are three fundamental relationships that the Jews have throughout history. And they really have to be examined. And we will see, of course, eventually how this plays out today. The first relationship is the Jews and God. That's the first thing to think about. And obviously the Jews have had a relationship with God for 4,000 years. Since Avram Avinu, he's the one who started and uh, we've been interacting with God off and on. Actually, it's really always on, but sometimes it looks like it's off for thousands of years. So that's the first thing. The second relationship that we need to examine is the Jews and what is called a segment of the Jewish population known Kabbalistically and according to Ashkafa, the Ere of Rav. The Ere of Rav is a mixed multitude and I will go into them. But they are a very important uh, element to the Jewish people. <clears throat> and of course, speaking about the Erev Rav, since they are Jews, is always very saddening. And it really is, you know, because we're talking about Jews. And uh, as we know that in Yeshayahu, it says uh, that the, your enemies will come from within. And he is referring to Jews, unfortunately, that make a lot of trouble for Jews, unfortunately. But in any case, and the third thing is the Jews and the Goyim. So the Jews have three very fundamental relationships, as I said, with God, with the Ere of Rab, that segment of the Jewish population, and, and the Goyim themselves. Now, <clears throat> the, most, one, uh, the basic, really, the most important one to understand is obviously the Jews and God. But obviously there's an incredible amount to say. But I want to focus on what, what I think is the most important of all, the relationship that the Jew has with God. What is the most important thing of all? It's called the, the agreement, the covenant, the bris that God made with the Jewish people. Everything begins from that agreement 
Okay? <clears throat> Everything begins and ends from that agreement. So we really have to understand what does God want, really, and what did we agree to? What did the Jewish people agree to? Because that matter of the agreement or the covenant with God, okay, is all-encompassing. It is cosmic in nature. And as we will see, determines a great deal of the messianic process. So let's take a look at that. First of all, it's interesting that the word bris, which means agreement or covenant, okay, it adds up to 612. And the, the, the well you, in Gematria, you're allowed to add the word itself as one. That's 613. So the covenant that God made with the Jews, of course, really is concerning the 613 commandments or mitzvahs. That is the covenant. Now, what was our reaction? Our means the Jewish people. Well, the Jews said Nasev and Ishma. That means they signed. They signed on the dotted line. Right? That's what it means. But that kind of an agreement was fabulous. Why? Because Nasev means we will do. And Nishma we will understand. And now that is unusual. Because most people don't sign agreements without knowing what in the world it says in the agreement. The contract. Right? Uh, yet the Jews said we don't really care. We know that whatever you're going to give must be letevaseinu. It has to be for our good. So really, what do we really care? You know what I'm saying? It's not a matter of we will disagree. What are we going to do? Negotiate with you on what the contract is? You know, because if we negotiate, what's the meaning of that? We are the ones who suffer. Because if we believe that everything you want us to do must conform to the best thing that we can have, why would we want to negotiate that? You see? So that's really what Nasser is, Venishma. It indicates that the Jews said that as far as God is concerned, everything everything that God does, the Tav Ovid, must be for the good. That is a universal principle that is absolute. And therefore the Jews said, why negotiate? Why even look into the contract? Why look into the Torah, which obviously is the verbal description of the entire contract? And that's what they said. And then, of course, Venishma means, and then we will understand. So, what does that mean? We signed. We signed on the dotted line. You see? That's, you know, not good for those people who are not adhering to the contract. Anyway, we signed. Now, lest you say, okay, so we signed. So, that's them. They, they signed. That's 3,300 years ago. You know? What's that have to do with us? Right? This is 2019. It's a long time ago that they signed, right? Ah, but God says in Itzovim, right? And He says, famous Pasik, that I am making this agreement with you. Those people who are Yeshnei Poi, those people who are here, and those people who are in Poi are not here. God is saying that this agreement is valid and operative for the entire history of mankind that you will be in. It means every Jew that is born must, is a signatory to the agreement and must adhere to that agreement. Now, there are of course people going to the fact and say, wait a minute, you know, how could you obligate somebody who's not even born, right, as part of a contract? These are all valid questions. But in the end, that's what God says. And it's all based on halacha, they have all kinds of discussions and so on. But whatever the discussion is, the truth is that it's all valid. 
In other words, we are is are we the descendants of the forefathers who received the Torah, Matan Torah? We are as obligated as they are to keep the Torah, which is the covenant. That's the contract. You see, so that's a very important idea to know. You know, you can't go up in the day that you have to stand in front of God, which eventually all of us have to, right? And God's going to say, well, what happened? You didn't keep this? And you're going to say, what do you mean? I didn't, I didn't sign, you know? And God, of course, is going to prove to you that you did sign in all kinds of mystical ways, you know, which could uh, because the according to Kabbalistic, all Neshamas were there and they, they agreed Nasa Vinishma, whatever that means. So in, in essence, you were there too. You see? Except you don't remember because God removed the consciousness of what you did when you were pure nishama instead of in a goof. Fine. But someday God is going to tap the mind and the memory and all of a sudden you're going to remember. This is uh, what the Chazal tell us and therefore that in some sense obligates everybody. In any case. Okay. Uh, so that's a very important idea to remember. That we are as obligated as, any, as the Jews who receive the Torah we are obligated to keep the laws and so on, okay? <clears throat> now, what does that mean, really? What does that mean? You know, what happens if we break the law? We break the contract, right? And we don't observe the contract, which fundamentally, as we'll get into, is the mitzvahs, right? We don't do it, you know? Does that mean God is going to change his mind? Because if one side breaches contract, then the other side legally has the right to abandon the contract as far as uh, law is concerned, right? You don't keep your end of the bargain, I don't keep my end of the bargain, and so on. But this is an unusual contract, you see, and uh, there's a great deal to talk about that, but here's what this contract says, that I will be your God forever. It means I'm not quitting. I don't care what you guys do. You see, I am not going to quit, I will be with you forever, as I, there's a, a lot of psukim, but I'm going to bring down one. Uh, so, God is our God forever. Can't get rid of Him. You see, no matter how hard you try. And believe me, there are people that are trying. Uh, but in that, essentially, <clears throat> the contract includes an eternity clause. If you want to call that, which means, I will be your God eternally. And guess what? You will be my subjects eternally. We cannot shake the contract, which is interesting, you know. Uh, so it's a very uh, different type of document that the Torah says that, you know, we are forever bound to God by this covenant. That's a very important idea to know, you know. Now, what that obviously, well, the Pasuk that refers to that, there are many, but <clears throat> the famous one is Kiloi Sishkach, actually, Kiloi Sishokach Mi the Torah will never be forgotten by his seed, which means the Jewish people. Which means it was never forgotten, so the Torah will never be forgotten. That's the contract, and by his seed is the Jewish people. And I would thought that's, that's eternal. That means, uh, as far as God is concerned, it can never happen that Jews will not know the Torah. All of them won't know the Torah. That is an impossibility, and it truly has never happened. No matter where the Jews have gone, whatever exile they've been in, no matter what sufferings they've had, there's always been a segment of the Jewish population that knows the Torah. And that's a promise by God. Okay? <clears throat> so what we see here, and uh, there are many other psukhim, where God openly says that I will never abandon you. 
You know, it may look like I abandoned you, but contractually I will never abandon you. I will always be your God. You will always be my people. So therefore, you know, we're not looking here at a temporary document. We're looking at something that is as eternal as God is himself. As long as he is around, we become his people and his subjects. These are fundamental ideas, which I'm, poor, I'm sure people know, but it's always nice to hear it again, very clearly and very succinctly, and so on. Good. Now, what that demands, by the way, is that if we don't keep the contract, God has to put in that contract stipulations. That, you know, if you do my contract, then here's what happens to you. If you don't do it, then here's what happens to you. It's another method, you see? Because in the end we have a job to do, which I will mention. But there's no way, in other words, what God therefore plans is that there are two ways of observing the contract. You see, one is a great way to observe the contract, which is filled with benefits and pleasure and so on, and good times. And the other one, if we don't observe it, is also there's what's called a stipulation that there's a second deal to the contract. And what is that? That is, of course, suffering, exile, persecutions, and so on, you know. And w w one of the places that we see that, which is very important, is Avram Avinu in Bratius. There's a, the, a pair called Brisbane Absarum, the covenant between the pieces. It's famous, where Avram Avinu went into a trance, a prophetic trance, and all of a sudden he saw different pieces and he saw an incredible torch going through the pieces and in those days the way they made a contract was you would go through pieces of animals or whatever and what went through and this was a prophetic trance prophecy where he saw a flaming torch go through and then he saw a smoking furnace go through those pieces and what was that since God made a covenant with Avraham and that's how it begins he went through in two different ways. The lapid ish, the fire, is the light of God that if you observe the commandments, the contract, then you will, you will, God will appear to you as a flame fire, which is incredible enlightenment of God. But if you don't, then what also went through the pieces was a, a smoking furnace, and Rashi says that furnace is Gehenim. You see? It's Gehenim which means exile, suffering, and so on. So the original contract that God made with Avraham Avinu included or embraced two different types of approaches, you see? And therefore, that's how God uh, makes sure uh, that the agreement itself is eternal, you see? Because there are two ways of addressing the Jews, if they keep the commandments or if they don't keep the commandments in order to accomplish whatever they have. Um, in any case, that's a very important idea. We do not have an option of defying God. That's really what it means. We may think we have the option, and God may give us the option, but that's an illusion. That's only to allow our free will to operate. But in the end, you pay. Either you have an incredible relationship with God, or unfortunately, suffering will come about in, many, in so many different ways. And in that way, you then, of course, uh, that's also called observing the contract. Okay, it's a very important idea. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> what is the contract? 
what does the contract essentially say? Now, obviously, it says a lot of stuff, but I'm going to summarize it. Just a couple of points, what the main idea of the contract is. One, we need to believe this. This is the contract. This is the fundamental aspects of our belief. One, that God is supreme. He's absolute and He's supreme. There's nothing greater than Him. That's idea one. Number two, that He's the only one that is supreme. There is nothing besides Him, which we say, Here Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is fundamental. So these are two fundamental beliefs. <clears throat> okay. Um, now, the second thing we need to believe is that God has values. There's actually things He values. He holds to be important. What are they? Those are the mitzvahs. He has a value system. And those are the mitzvahs. That's the second thing that we must believe. It's part of the contract. Third thing <clears throat> is that we need to observe, but more importantly, we need to personify those values. It's not just observing the mitzvahs. We actually have to personify, which means we become a living embodiment of those mitzvahs. And that's really called the Avoida. You know, to pray to God, to worship God, humility, the character traits, and so on. It is part of the contract that God made with us to personify the mitzvahs. You see, <clears throat> so that, like I said, is part of the agreement that we have made with God. Next, another thing is that we have to be, as a result of the fact that we personify this, we have to be a model. Yes, we have to be able to display to the rest of mankind that there is a spiritual existence of which we are cognizant of, and not only that, but we will observe the rules of that spiritual existence, even though we don't see it. That's really what it is. The mitzvahs are nothing more than the rules and regulations of a spiritual dimension. Whether you see it or not doesn't make a difference, you see? But that's really what it is. A mitzvah isn't just something arbitrary that God picked out. These are rules and regulations that God knows that you must observe in order to inherit a spiritual dimension. We believe, therefore, that that's what it will happen. Okay, but that's what a mitzvah basically is. It is the necessity to exist in a spiritual dimension. In any case, but we have to be a model to that, for the Goyim, for the rest of mankind, that God wants us also to do that, Am Segula, and so on, which is a very important part of the agreement. <clears throat> now, if we do that, then the agreement says something else. We have a mission. The Jew, every Jew has a mission. It's, it's similar, but every Jew is appointed a different aspect of the mission. What is that mission? To bring God back. God is not spiritual, he's beyond spirituality. And what the Russian wants to do is return to the Bria. He wants to return, not that he's gone, but he does not allow his presence to be observed or seen by man. He wants to come back, you see. He wants to come back to the physical universe. Actually, he wants to come back to the earth. You see, the way he was when he first created the earth. So the mission of the Jew is to bring God back to the physical universe. You see, <clears throat> and as a result of that, then everybody will see the reality of God. That's what he wants. That is the mission of the Jew, to allow spirituality to re-enter and interface with the physical world. That's what he wants. Now, the one who does that, obviously, is the Mashiach. 
That's what the Messiah does. He introduces to mankind an entirely different dimension. It's like a fifth or eighth dimension. And that dimension is called spirituality, the spirituals. worlds. And that's what the Mashiach does. In fact, that's his main job. That idea is called the Messianic light. That's the purpose of the Mashiach. The purpose of the Mashiach is not so much to redeem us as we think, you know, politically, uh, <clears throat> economically, and so on. The real job of the Mashiach is called the Messianic light, and what his purpose is, is to reveal to the Jews who brought him, and to mankind who now sees him, an entirely different reality structure. And that's called the spiritual universe, you see. And that is the essence of the Messianic light, or, or, the Mashi or Mashiach, and so on. It's also called the Oragonos, the concealed light, and it's also called the Orishan, the first light that was extant when God created the world. Therefore, this fundamentally is what the Mashiach does. He brings God back, and we then observe, in an unbelievable way, a completely spiritual universe. That's the mission. But there's one more aspect of the mission. It's not enough to bring God back to the world. What the Mashiach does, as a result of the fact that we kept the contract, is that the physical universe is transformed into a spiritual. So there's no more physical universe. It's only spiritual, and that is called Ilm Haba, and that continues forever. So there you are. That's, that's what the contract says. It's a lot of parts, right? But we signed. What can I tell you, you know? We signed. Uh, in any case, and of course God signed, and that's what, uh, basically, that is what uh, our, our job is. So, every Jew, therefore, is a member of the covenant. You know? We all are members, because we all signed, right? We all agreed, and this is our job. That concept of agreement or covenant is the most single greatest important idea of the relationship between the Jew and God. That's how great it is. Because it defines us, it defines our mission, and it defines our future. Everything is all based on that agreement. And therefore God is eternally our God, and we are eternally His people. You know, you cannot minimize or overemphasize in any way the importance of that agreement. Now, <clears throat> when we look at that agreement, we can ask ourselves, well, what's a Jew's attitude as regards that agreement? And there are really five. <clears throat> Throughout history, the Jews have always grappled with that agreement, as we will see. It, and that, in, 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 if you ask yourself, what's the main issue of a Jew? Is it to make a living? Right? Is it to have shalom bias? Right? What is it? It's really, what is your attitude about that agreement? You see? What are you going to do? Therefore, if you look at it, there are five different levels of that agreement. Five different attitudes that you can have toward that agreement. And this has happened throughout history. <clears throat> the first idea, there are Jews that say, hey, I signed and I'm completely on board with that agreement. Okay, that's called a fully Torah-observant Jew. These guys, right, whatever you want to call them, you know, the Orthodox and so on, they are people that are fully in, you know, in agreement, totally, uh, with, the, uh, with the covenant that they made with God. 
and therefore they try to observe every single law. That's the first group. They are members and this is what they do. But then you have the second group and we are now going to witness deviations from people's attitude about that agreement. And this presents problems. The second group is the group that did the Chet Egel, the sin of the golden calf. Now, um, why would they do that? I mean, they just got out of Egypt miraculously. They witnessed ten, ten plagues. They witnessed even more Kriya Samsuf, which we cannot even begin to fathom what that was about. And besides Kriya Samsuf, right, then they're standing on Mount Terra, where they hear God. So, like, what's happening here? Why would they sin like that? And the answer is that they, it, it, it's not that they didn't believe in God. They didn't reject the covenant, the agreement that God made with them. But the mistake that they made is that they decided that God can be represented by a physical representation. The eagle. You see? You can actually create some type of a physical object and worship it as a representation of God. And that's a no-no. You can't do that. Because that automatically begins to indicate that God in some way has a connection with the physical universe. Of course, which he doesn't. You see? And that's why the Barsham says, you have not seen any likeness of me. Nothing. You know? And therefore you can't make any kind of pictures, objects of the moon, the sun, whatever, right? Uh, cow, uh, uh, cattle, uh, rams, what the Egyptians did and so on, you know? And that was the mistake they made. They, they tried to physically represent God as an idol. And that was bad news. You see? So they didn't reject the Torah, if you really think about that. They never said, we're not observing your covenant at all. What they simply did is they made a mistake. You see? Or maybe, uh, for whatever reason, because look, when they left the, uh, Egypt, obviously, you know, uh, it's like they say, you know, you could take um, the Jews out of Egypt. But you can't take Egypt out of the Jews. You know, it sticks with them. Because uh, it was so many years. And obviously, this is how they thought about a deity. That it can represent it physically. Uh, but in any case, that's a deviation. That's the beginning of the deviation. So that's uh, what's called membership level two. Okay? Then we come to the third level of... Uh, they're all members, because every Jew is a member. No matter what he does. Remember, the agreement is eternal. But... As they say in Yiddish, Sinish good. It's already not good. Why? What level is that? It's where a Jew believes he's a Jew. He's got the identity of a Jew. He knows he's Jewish and so on, you know. But he believes he's a nation or people like every other people. What does that mean? That means the Torah is not divine. Their attitude toward the agreement is no longer what God said. Uh, they now believe that the Torah is not divine at all. It was man-made. So then what's their attitude of Torah? And they do respect the Torah. But here's what they hold. Okay. That the Torah is not divine. It's basically man-made. Okay. It has a tremendous amount of wisdom. It's an incredible piece of literature. Right? But so is Shakespeare. So the respect that they have for the Torah is no longer spiritual. It is now part of the culture of the Jew. Uh, this is a very bad deviation, obviously, because it's an annulment or a nullification of the agreement itself, you see. So that's the third class of Jewish people. 
Then you have what's called the fourth class of Jewish people. What is that? <clears throat> Where a Jew knows he's a Jew, but he has absolutely no connection whatsoever with the Torah. There are Jews walking around that do not even know, in a certain sense, what the Torah is. They don't know. They don't know anything about Shabbos. Nothing. It's astounding uh, if you speak to some of these people that they have a complete ignorance of anything Jewish. Oh, you see. So that is not even a deviation from Torah. They don't know anything. And they're not interested in learning anything about what happened in Jewish history. That's obviously a much more negative or inferior type of Jew, uh, even though he's still a member of Klan Israel, you see. Then you have the sixth class, the fifth class, which in a certain sense is the worst of all. These are the Jews that assimilate, which means they become goyim. Let's forget about a Jewish identity. There's no difference between me and anybody else. I'm like a goy, that's all. So uh, what they do is they assimilate, they become goyim, basically, you know, uh, and then, uh, and they'll just completely do whatever they want with absolutely no restriction whatsoever or no commitment to anything, right, other than whatever they want. Unfortunately, that's the, one of the greatest tragic situations of a Jew where he knows nothing. And then what happens is he intermarries. When he intermarries, not only is he gone, but his progeny is gone. That's the end of his kids. They will become goyim, it usually happens, <clears throat> and so on. And therefore, that's the end of, that is the end of the continuity of this person as a Jew. Terrible. But these are the five levels of Jews in terms of their attitude about the agreement itself. It's very important to analyze, because then basically each one needs some type of a solution. In any case... <clears throat> <clears throat> now, you may ask, well, wait a minute. I mean, if you have these five kind of Jews with their attitudes about the Torah or the contract, remember, the Torah is a contract. It's an agreement. It's not merely a list of laws. It's an agreement that we agree to. So you can begin to ask, you know, well, what's God going to do? What is he going to do? Is he going to take these people back? You know, so level one and level two, the Orthodox and the people who want to represent them physically, Okay, not good, the second one. But from three and down, it's terrible because they've abrogated the entire Torah. There's no divinity in it. Some people don't know anything about it and some people think they're goyim. You see, what about them? Are they still members of the Jewish people? Will God bring them back? Do they get the future world? And the answer is, yes, they do. Because that's the, that's, in many ways, that's how we benefit. Once God said that he will be forever our God, you see, permanently, and that we will be his people permanently, well, that means that every Jew really will ultimately get Olam Habo, the future world. However, the way they get it will be substantially different, obviously, because then you have to go into method two. With suffering, you have to go into reincarnations. There's a lot of stuff. Then there's Gehenna. There's, there's a lot of stuff that has to go on uh, in order for God to get every Jew into Ilam Habo. But as they say in English, by hook or by crook, they'll get in. And there's a Pusik. It's a beautiful Pusik that should offer everybody hope. You know, no matter, you know, what, no matter what uh, mitzvahs you've done, no matter what sins you've done. And it says in its sovereign by Revi'im. 
It says, Im hashemayim, If you're outcast, will be at the end of heaven. Right? God will gather you, no matter how far you are. God will gather you. And God identifies himself as Hashem Lokecho, the Lord your God. What do you mean the Lord your God? If he's got to bring in guys at the end of the earth, that's how far they are. Why is he calling himself the Lord your God? Because that's exactly what the context says. That God is permanently God to all Jews, right? Even if you're at the end of heaven. Now, the question is, why does it say the end of heaven? It should say the end of the earth. You know, that's what it should say. Even if you look at the end of the earth, which means you are so far away, we can call it at the ends of the earth, you know? It says, doesn't say that. It says at the end of heaven. And th that concept reveals a profound truth. What it says is that uh, the root and the essence of a Jew is not of this planet. It is not of the physical universe. It is spiritual. You don't realize, but our abode is really in Shemayim. The origin of the Neshama is in the spiritual worlds. It is not here. We, however, in a long chain of Neshamas and so on, we exist here. That's how we manifest. But really we start in what's called Oilem Bria. We start in an incredibly high spiritual level. So therefore, really when you think about it, where are we? We're really in heaven. So God says, even if you're at the end of heaven, which means you're, you're, you're about to fall out of heaven onto the earth, because our residence is really heaven, right? So the lowest Jew is not somebody at the end of the earth. The lowest Jew, in the sense that he's rejected everything, is really at the end of heaven, because he's about to fall into the earth. And God says, I will gather you. And God calls himself, Lord your God, I will gather you. What does that mean? That means in the, when, before the Messiah comes, God will bring in all the exiles, every Jew, right? No matter who you are, whether you are uh, assimilated, whether you are intermarried, and so on, whether you are orthodox, you see? Doesn't make a difference. Or whether you don't believe in the Torah, doesn't make a difference. I'll get you all back. And then it says, after he will gather everybody, and from there he will take you. What's the difference between gathering and taking? The Rebbe will gather you means he will bring you back and it says uh, to, to the land of Israel right he will bring you back as a Jew okay and then he will take you which means he will take you to him which means he will raise your spiritual level that is the guarantee that's right that every Jew not only will come back but they will be raised to be unbelievable spiritual people now how that happens is anybody's guess because we are talking about something which is so formidable, so beyond comprehension, I can bring a Jew that has nothing to do with Torah, that doesn't believe in Torah, that's assimilated, that's got kids, he married a Goy, and his kids are Goyim. How that's going to happen is beyond our comprehension. But it will happen, as this Pasuk indicates. Every Jew will come back, every Jew will again realize who God is, and every Jew will become spiritual, whether you like it or not. That's the, God, that's the agreement. So in a certain sense, we're very glad that God made this type of an agreement. That no matter where we wander, we're going to come back. It's a very important idea. Okay. <clears throat> so this basically is a discussion about the contract. Very important idea.
to have it crystal clear what the deal is and so on, you know? But now we have to talk about the third group. <clears throat> the third group are people, are people that what? That have a Jewish identity, they recognize Torah, but it's not divine. You know, it's great culture, it's a great contribution that the Jews have given to mankind, right? It has spawned other religions, right? But Torah is not, it's not the agreement that we think it is. You see? <clears throat> this is called an Air of Rav. Now what does that mean? What does that mean? What's the origin of a segment of Jews that is referred to as the Air of Rav? The, the origin is really by Esav and Yaakov. When Yaakov was about to meet Esav, what happened? Uh, he said, he prayed to God, he said, Hatsileni no miyad miyad Esav. Save me from my brother from Esav. Now, that obviously appears to be redundant because we know that Esav is his brother. So what do you mean, save me from my brother, save me from Esav? Okay, so <clears throat> what that means is a very important concept, you see. What Yaakov was saying, save me from Esav, no matter how he presents himself to me. He could present himself to me as my brother, right? Telling me to abandon the Torah. Or he can come as Esav, openly argumentative, and, 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 and plotting to destroy my bond with the Torah. Either way, save me, you see. Now, Rav, the Ochi are Jews, okay, but it's not a regular average Jew. A, average, a Jewish person himself who doesn't know anything about Torah, or who doesn't believe in the divinity of Torah, he's not an heir of Rav. He's just simply a lost Jew, you see. That is not an heir of Rav. Well, an heir of Rav is something else. It is a Jew, because you see that from Esau. What an heir of Rav is a Jew, okay, that is in a position of authority and power, and in the position to influence other Jews, to follow him, you see, and he does influence. That's an heir of Rav. You see, that kind of person is extremely dangerous. Why? Because he is doing exactly what God does not want. God says you must keep the contract. And here's a Jewish person saying, and he has the influence, the power, and the authority, trying to get you not to observe the Torah or to keep the agreement between you and God. In many ways, that is an enemy of God, obviously, because that's exactly against the will of God. You know, whether that person is, is premeditated or deliberate, that's a different story. But clearly his acts are against the will of God, you see. And that's what an heir of Rav is. Now, an heir of Rav, you should know, a person who is an heir of Rav, is the most dangerous enemy to the Jewish people. The most. Why? Because he is the equivalent of a tumor. <clears throat> Why, what, what, wherein lies the destructive ability of cancer? <clears throat> Where the body doesn't recognize it. Because the cancer itself, the tumor, is really self. It is the body. It is a bunch of cells, right, that have lost control, and they now multiply perpetually. They never stop. Uh, and therefore the body does not recognize it because they have the same type of what's called receptors as any normal cell so therefore the body does not recognize it as a killer that's a tumor the problem with the air of Rav is the same idea 
because they are Jews and they could be nice people. I'm not talking about people that are vicious or anything like that. It's their belief that poisons them. It's not their character. That's very important to understand, you see. But since they're nice and they come across as pleasant, right? And they come across as convincing in positions of authority, they will convince you to leave the Torah. That makes them the greatest enemy. And that's why they're so dangerous. And they are the greatest soldiers of the Sultan. You see, when the Sultan is dying, as he is doing now, right, he will always turn to the Jews to destroy the Jews. He won't, he won't even bother with the Goyim, because by now Jews recognize what the Goyim are, right, and they have their own agenda in mind. But he will turn to the Jews that want to espouse a philosophy where Torah is not divine, and you could be a Jew without Torah, you see. Uh, so therefore, <clears throat> in that sense, the heir of Rav is the most dangerous enemy of the Jewish people, and in his most dangerous enemy of God, in that sense. Again, not because of his character, he's a very nice guy. That's not the issue. The issue is his belief, and that he desires to spread that belief all over. That's what makes him so dangerous. In any case, <clears throat> So the heir of Rav person is not anti-God. That's a mistake. He's anti-Torah, which is different, you see. And in many ways, that's what an heir of Rav is. They are anti-Torah people, again, not because, I'm not saying that they have terrible characters or anything like that. This is their belief, and they want to uh, uh, foist this belief on all the Jews. Uh, this is therefore what they do. And uh, like I say, because of that, because they're not recognized as enemies, they're ochi, they're the most dangerous people of all, and the satan will always use them, in a certain sense, as the last resort. And really, that's what he did also by Matan Torah. The ones who did the Chet to Egel, the sin of the golden calf, was the heir of Rav, and they were heir of Rav, even amongst then, the Jewish people. And they're the ones who actually did the sin of the golden calf. But since none of the Jews stopped them, they were also held accountable. Because if you don't stop somebody from doing that, and you can, then you also share in the guilt of that individual. Because God is very exacting about what contributes and causes a sin. And he will go miles and miles away if in some way you are connected. In any case, so that basically is what an heir of Rav is. <clears throat> you know, an anti-Semite is different than an heir of Rav. An heir of Rav is against the Torah, you see, but he's not necessarily against the Jews at all. On the contrary, an anti-Semite is different. He hates the Jew himself. A Goy is an anti-Semite, can be an anti-Semite. Of course, there are many Goyim, non-Jews that are not anti-Semites. Of course not, right? Uh, but if somebody's an anti-Semite, it has nothing to do with the Torah. What they're against is you living or existing. They want to eradicate the Jews. And that, that's the difference. And uh, uh, most Jews are not anti-Semites. They could be anti-Torah. That's always the difference, you know. Uh, but uh, like, as I say, but anti-Semites have a whole different idea. And what's the origin of anti-Semitism? Why are people anti-Semitic? There are many ideas. Jealousy or whatever. But one of the chief ideas the Gemara says, why is Mount Sinai called Sinai? So the Gemara says, the Chazal say, that because Sinai 
is a play in the word sinner because that's where hatred of God or Jews developed from Sinai. Why? And because the Torah confronts the ego of man. This is the problem. Uh, the Torah confronts the ego of man and says, wait a minute, you know, you think you're boss. No, it is God that's the boss. So Matan Torah was the origin of, of, of uh, dinam, of laws that constrained, restricted man. You see, and mankind cannot tolerate that. The origin in many ways of anti-Semitism is because of the fact that God gave the laws on Mount Sinai and people cannot tolerate laws. There's always a desire to overthrow. Like I once said in the last year, you know, man desires either to be God, to overthrow God, or he thinks he is God. It's one of those three. You see, the last thing a person wants to do is subject himself to control or the regulations of another being. Ah, so therefore, this is the idea. The Goy hates the Jew. Why? Because he hates God. And the Jew is the ambassador from God. He is the one who represents God in this planet. And therefore, he hates the Jew. The origin of anti-Semitism really is a hatred of the divine. That's basically what it is. Because it confronts his ego. And therefore he hates that. In fact, if you think about it, <clears throat> Hitler wrote a book, Yemach Shemoy, Mein Kampf, in 1923. And he writes there. And he was, he, at least he was, he, was, he was very honest. He said, right, <clears throat> that uh, the Jews have made wimps of mankind. They have made us timid and wimps. They gave us a guilt complex. Why? Because they gave us their laws of Sinai. He openly says that. And therefore, <clears throat> they are against the Superman, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, the German uh, con con conception of man, the, the Nietzsche and the Superman and so on, you know. Uh, <clears throat> therefore, we must destroy the Jews. Because he recognized, and that's the classic Hazal, he recognized that the origin of guilt and conscience is a Jewish phenomenon. If there would have been no Sinai, then nobody would have a guilty conscience at all and could do what they want. He actually wrote that in Mein Kampf. And unfortunately, you know, he was allowed to carry out what he believed in. And that's why he hated the Jews. And he was the, you know, obviously he's a megalomaniac. So to him, Sinai would be the greatest, uh, you know, anathema he can imagine uh, when you compare, you know, what, what a guy like that, what his attitude toward regulations and so on you know but in any case so that's the origin so uh, uh, Jews are basically not anti-Semites they're anti-Torah that's there's a big difference and that's the era of Rav you see <clears throat> now when you think about that you, be you begin to understand a certain conclusion once you have these basic understandings crystallized what exactly is going on begin to realize the difference between the nations of the world and the Jews. All nations, what do they seek? They seek security, obviously. They seek prosperity. They seek happiness and meaning and certainly liberty and freedom. Why? Because they want to be able to pursue self-interest. Self-interest, that's really what they want to pursue. Which makes sense. Everybody wants to be prosperous, secure and happy and have a meaningful life. Makes a lot of sense. But that's not what the Jews do. The Jews don't seek that per se. It's nice to have. 
But the agenda of the Jew is not that, is not self-interest. It is to bring God back to the world. That is what the Jew is always focused on. And that is what the agreement does. Therefore, what, uh, it's, it's interesting when you think about that, you know, um, <clears throat> that uh, Trump says <coughs> to make America great, and of course the Jew says, no, it's to make God great again. That's what the Jew thinks about. The agreement of God that we have with him is to bring him back, is to make him great again, which means to bring him back in the presence of all mankind. The Jews are very special people. They're very different. Their entire meaning, their entire agenda and focus has nothing to do with what the world does. That's why God says, you are a nation that dwells alone. What does that mean, alone? It doesn't mean physically alone. It means your mission, which is part of the contract, is completely different than every nation on the planet. Like I said, they are concerned with their well-being. You're concerned with God's well-being in the sense of his reappearance on the earth. And that is really what the agreement is. It's the, it's the essence of what really has to go on and so on, you know. Once we understand all this, we begin to realize certain very important ideas, you see. <clears throat> that the agreement of a Jew with God is the essence of his existence. And that is the most important thing that a Jew has, is his agreement with God. There is nothing that supersedes that. That is everything. Therefore, somebody who is an heir of Rav, somebody who is what? Somebody who is a Jew, he's in a position of authority and power and influence, and he does influence. In many ways, he is the greatest threat to the continuity and identity of the Jewish people. There is nobody greater than that because he wants to convince everybody to abandon the Torah. You see, <clears throat> in many ways, tragically, okay, there are many segments of the Jewish people that have done that. Who are they, or what are they? Well, in America, it's the Reformed movement, the conservative movement, and the Reconstructionists. They have abandoned the Torah, you know. They, of course, try to substitute it with something else, uh, but fundamentally, they have negated, nullified the Torah itself. They have destroyed American Jewry. It took many years, but they have destroyed American Jewry. I mean, American Jewry, millions of Jews are gone because of those three movements, which is terrible. You know, it's, a terrible, it's terrible to have to say that about Jews, what they've done to the Jews. But they have destroyed the spirituality of Am Yisrael, of the Jewish people. You know, uh, so that's a, that's a, a very important idea. <coughs> so that's one idea. Now, the Reformed movement people, Jews, like I said, they're not heir of Ralph. What do they know? <coughs> There's so many people in those movements that have no idea of what Torah is. It is the leaders of these movements that are the heir of Ralph. See? And that's what Yeshaya said. That from within you will come your destroyers. And that's the heir of Ralph. Now, that's American Jewry. But what's about to happen is terrible in Israeli politics. You have to understand what, what this means, the significance of this, you know. And I'm, I'm going to be very explicit because it's an enormous threat to the continuity of the Jewish people. 
if you ask me, what would I compare this time, you know, this time period, especially with the elections in Israel coming up, I will tell you, I would compare it to Kriya Syamsuf. What does that mean? <clears throat> you see, before evil disappears, it grows. And not only that, but there's a time that evil actually dies or diminishes. And then all of a sudden, evil resurges to come back again. That's the nature of evil, uh, you see. <clears throat> so therefore, the Egyptians were wiped out. I mean, God sent the Makkas, the plagues, destroyed Egypt, right? After what he did to Egypt was destroyed, right? And then the Jews leave, okay? <coughs> and then what happens is all of a sudden, Pharaoh wakes up and says, wait a minute, we lost a lot of slave labor. It's incredible, the economy... You know, when you have uh, millions of Jews who are slave laborers, slave la laborers and so on and so forth, you know, he realized. So what did he do? He gathered his army, the best of his chariots, and he ran after, ran after the Jew. What is the hashkaf of that, really? <clears throat> it means this is the resurgence of evil, you see. <clears throat> Where evil is again trying to awaken again and dominate the Jew. At that point in time, it is the greatest threat to the Jewish people. We know that, right? <clears throat> now, the Egyptians didn't want to kill the Jews. You don't kill free labor. What they want to do is recapture the Jews, right? And bring them back to Egypt, you see. <clears throat> Therefore, what that would have meant is that evil would again dominate, you see. And all of a sudden, the Jews are trapped. If you would ask a general, right? What are the chances of the Jews? The sea is on one side, right? And the Egyptian army is on the other. And it's obviously going to be a bloodbath because the Jews are going to fight. But they really have no weapons. What do they have? Some sticks? What do they really have, you know? Anybody would have said that it's going to be a slaughter of the Jews. Uh, but the hashkof of this is very important. This is the final confrontation. Think about that. It's the end. It's called the home stretch. Either the Jews will survive and go to Har Sinai and receive the Torah and become a whole different nation because of the agreement, the Torah. Or <clears throat> evil will again dominate and all the Jews will have to go back to Egypt, right? And that's the end of the people, the Jewish people as we know it. And, and so on. Because we know that the Jews already had assimilated, basically. Uh, we know <clears throat> that the Jews were taken out of Egypt because they were at the 49th level of Tumor. In fact, the only thing going for the Jews at that point in time, after so many hundreds of years of slavery, is that they did not change their language, their dress, and their names. And God took them out. Why? <clears throat> because <clears throat> the fundamental identity of a person is his name, his language, and his dress. So what God took out is still Jews. They still maintain the identity of the Jew, even though many of them worshipped idols. And that's what the argument was at the Red Sea, where one of the angels said, why do you want to save the Jews as opposed to the Egyptians? They also worship idols, the Jews. In any case, so God took out the Jews. And that's why, had they given that up, we do not know what would have happened. If God would bother to rescue them, uh, because there wasn't an agreement yet, although he did make an agreement with Avram Avinu. But in any case, he did take them out. Uh, there was a Jewish identity, you see. <clears throat> and that, if you think about it, is the final confrontation, you know. 
This is the, what happens at Egypt or the Yamsuf is critical to the existence of the Jew. <clears throat> of course, what did God do? He intervened miraculously. You see, he wiped them out again. <coughs> he wiped them out with the Red, the, the, the Red Sea. And then he brought the Jew to the, uh, of course, Har Sinai. But it's interesting to see what God did. Because the, 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 there are three things that are prominent in the Messianic era of how the Mashiach comes. One, the first thing is of an Ahapechu. That the Messianic era before, in order to develop, happens as a shock. It's not like things are going all of a sudden and things gr happen gradually. There's always a shock of an Ahapechu. It's like Haman, right? Haman is the Grand Vizier. He's got everything going to destroy the Jew. And in one night, the guy was destroyed. It says, V'nahapechu. Now, there's a reason why God does that. Because if the Satan is aware that this is nothing more than a gradual process to bring the Mashiach, which is the, his end, right? He's going to use his weapon. And what's the weapon of the Satan? Din, justice. Kitrug, prosecution. So therefore, God has to conceal from the Satan the messianic process itself. That's why, uh, you see, <clears throat> so that's why it's a v'nahapechu. It looks like it's over with, right? And all of a sudden, right around, it turns around where nobody could believe what happened. That's the v'nahapechu, you see. Uh, second thing, Pasuk, is usually is the evan wasu aboinam, that the stone that the builders rejected, hoyasal roish pino, became the cornerstone of the whole edifice. Uh, you see, the Jews that were despised in Egypt, right? Despised, literally. The lowest social class in Egypt, right? They became the Rosh Pina. They brought spirituality and religion to the entire planet. That's what they did. And the last thing is where God does it and everybody recognizes after the shock that only God could have done this. And that's where God said at, at Kriyas Yamsev, His Yatsu Uru'u Stand back and watch, right? As Yeshua Hashem, the salvation of God. Hashem Yilochem God will fight for you. V'atem tachrishun, and you be silent. That means God says, don't do a thing. Watch what I do. And that's one of the greatest of all miracles because nobody could take credit for the splitting of the Red Sea. You see, Maybe the only one who could take credit for the splitting was Cecil B. DeMille when he made the Ten Commandments. Hey, maybe he could take credit for that, right? <clears throat> but basically, <clears throat> those three sukkim are always present in the Messianic era, before the Messianic era, you see. <clears throat> so therefore, that was Yamsuf, you know? It was of Nahapechu. Anybody would have said the Jews are finished, right? God himself miraculously did it all, right? That's what he did. He siatsvuru, right? And he did it to a despised nation. And like I say, uh, he did it miraculously. Why? First of all, that the Jews should believe in God. They should have the amuna that God's not going to allow them to die. You see? But also to conceal from the Sultan so he won't prosecute the Jews in heavenly court not to have the redemption. So he conceals it. And then the last minute, he does it and the Sultan has got his mouth open. He can't believe it. And it's too late for the Kitrugim, for the prosecutions, because he just rescued the Jews. 
You see, <clears throat> now if you think about it, and I said this a long time ago, this is exactly what happened to Trump. If you think about that, the exact same process. Trump is a Vanahapechu, right? In fact, everybody in America needed a psychologist for therapy and, 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 and psychiatrists, right? They could not believe. To this day, they can't believe that Trump won. So that's a Vanahapechu, right? Evan Moasu Habainim, right? <clears throat> is that, and the builders, right? Uh, they despised, and Trump was incredibly despised, right? And so on. And he won miraculously against all odds, against the media. People to this day cannot come to terms with the fact that he is president. <coughs> you see? <clears throat> and this is a very important. What we are facing now, and I want to give you the framework. We are now at Kriya Samsov. We are now here. Do not fool yourself. Why? Well, let's take a look at the Israeli elections. Okay? <clears throat> and then uh, I, I would like to say what a possible solution or uh, a possible exit or remedy for this is, you know. <clears throat> you have basically an individual, Benny Gantz. Be very explicit. He's supposed to be a very nice guy. He probably is. He's probably a great guy. But there's nothing wrong with his character. There's everything wrong with his beliefs. Everything. He, with his belief system, can destroy the Jewish people. I, I, I'm, I'm not in any way blaming him. I don't know what his upbringing was. You know, maybe he's a teenage Janizba, you know, and it has nothing to do with his character, but his belief system is completely anathema to the entire agreement between God and the Jews. And in many ways, he is doing very well in the polls, and Netanyahu, of course, is doing very poorly. Now, what are some of the ideas that he holds? <clears throat> okay, <clears throat> one, and, and I, I'm, I took this from the papers, and this is what he said. Finally, the guy said something about what he's going to do, you see. But uh, what he said was, one, <clears throat> is that the Reformed will have a place at the Kaisal. That's one. What? He wants to legitimatize the Erevrav, you see. That they will have a place at the Kaisal? Like, what is that supposed to mean? They've already destroyed American Jewry. Why would he want them to destroy Israeli Jewry? You see? Uh, but that's exactly what it means. The man has no concept what the reform can do once they are unleashed. Because that's the era of Rav. So that's his first uh, you know, uh, uh, platform. Is to give them a makam. And uh, automatically that means to legitimatize the whole reform movement. Which is one of the greatest destructive forces known to the Jew. They have wiped out religion in America. And not only that, they are suffering because all the, the, there's so many of their congregants, so to speak, are leaving reform. They're losing left and right and they know that. And that's why they're doing things which really are ridiculous. You know, they're marrying off a Jew to a guy. They don't care because of course they need congregants. You know, so what if the guy is not Jewish? Why should that be an impediment? In any case, so that's the first thing he wants, well, that's one thing he wants to do. Second thing, it's Chil Shabbos. <clears throat> you know, it's like they say, more than the Jew has observed Shabbos, Shabbos has, has kept the Jew. You see, Shabbos is one of the, the pivotal ideas of the whole Judaism. God says so many times, and you observe my Sabbath, without going into the spiritual concept of Shabbos. And he wants to allow it in any city that wants to have it for public transportation. 
Uh, but that means that the state of Israel will no longer represent in any way the Torah. That means any city that wants to have public transportation of Shabbos can do so. But that's one of the greatest desecrations because it's not just one person. He will allow Jews to violate the Shabbos on an official level, not because you just want to do it in your house. And again, uh, I mean, it, it, it's beyond belief what a violation of the Torah that is, and so on. <clears throat> then besides that, <clears throat> he said that it's okay for him if Israel has alternative lifestyles, which basically means same-sex uh, uh, same marriages or homosexuality or whatever, which the Torah says is a death sentence, whatever, and so on. But he's okay with alternative lifestyles. And once you're okay with alternative lifestyle, then of course what's dangerous is you're going to allow, it's going to be a basic law that you cannot discriminate against these people, right? So, you know, if you discriminate, maybe some homosexual wants to give a shia and a yeshiva, can't discriminate, and of course he'll come in with his whole lifestyle. That's what's happening in America. It's wreaking havoc in America. That he wants to do. <clears throat> Another thing which he wants to do is civil marriages. Civil marriages, <clears throat> that means that <clears throat> any marriage is okay, even if they are halakhically invalid, which of course destroys the whole yichus of Klai Israel. We're talking about the Jewish identity. A civil marriage will destroy a, a, you know, if it's not a Torah marriage, so to speak, but a civil marriage, that destroys the identity of a Jew. That means the Orthodox are going to have a, a whole list of people who are Orthodox, right? And you have to be on that list in order to marry an Orthodox Jew. That means Israel will be split in terms of its yichus, if this occurs, which is a death blow to the Jew. Then uh, besides that, then there's the concept of the draft. There's no question that he's going to allow or put quotas on people learning Torah. So that, of course, is the, in, in, in many ways, the beginning of the, uh, the incredible interference in Torah learning. Because not everybody can learn Torah. You have to send us a certain amount to the army. You know, it reminds me of the Russian draft, where they would go to each village and they would say, okay, there's a certain percentage that you had to go to the Russian army, and that army, you were there for 25 years. And that was the end of you, basically. It was a death sentence for spirituality. You know, <clears throat> uh, that's what it reminds me of, you know. And then, another thing is, which I couldn't believe, but I read it, and I just want to quickly read it. It's Gantz on the disengagement. Could be modeled for future policy. What does that mean? <clears throat> okay. In his first political interview, <clears throat> Benny Gantz provided ammunition to rivals who say his new party, Choyson Israel, is left, not center, and I will explain that. In the interview with Yediot Achronot, Gans praised the 2006 disengagement from Gaza, which threw some 10,000 Jews out of their homes and said it could be a model for Yehud and Shomron. And we have to realize what this guy is saying. <clears throat> so he said, Gans, <clears throat> Quote, the disengagement was perfectly legal, legal and adopted by the government and carried out by the IDF, is what he's saying. For the residents of the affected areas, it was painful. But it turned out for the good. Now, what does that mean? You mean Hamas, who is now killing Jews, that's what came out of the fact that there was a disengagement. And then they were elected, and they were made head of in, in Gaza and so on. That was good, <clears throat> you know. And um, 
we must learn the lessons and actualize them elsewhere he said adding that Israel needs needed to figure out ways we were not ruling over the other people yeah why not why not give them away half is Israel and you won't re, re, uh, rule over anybody and of course to show you how good this was the Palestinians welcomed his remarks obviously uh, it's encouraging if he succeeds and he sticks to his opinion you know, this is what the, uh, the Mahmoud Abbas's aide uh, said and so on and so forth. You know, <clears throat> what does all this mean? Just take a look at all these policy statements. It's the heir of Rav. He is an heir of Rav. And not only that, he's an heir of Rav. He's, if he's elected, right, he will destroy Israel. Because all of these things will ultimately fracture, fragment the Jewish people. And it's incredibly dangerous, you see. And why is he doing that? And I want to point out something. He is not anti-Torah. I don't believe that. His problem is not that he's a left. What is a guy who's on the left? What does that mean? Ever notice politicians, your right or your left? Right guys, and this came from I forgot which country where the right guys used to be conservative on the right side of the legislature was conservative. And the left guys were progressives, you know. Right simply means to be conservative, which means to be, to, to uh, establish or to, uh, uh, you know, uh, concretize the, uh, the, uh, the uh, status quo. The left side are progressives. They want to change everything, right? Uh, that's not his problem. His problem is not that he's a left. His problem is a liberal. So his, what, what, what Gantz feels is that he's a liberal. He wants to, he's pro-everybody. He's not anti-Haredi or anti-Torah. He's just pro-everybody. Means whatever you want, that's fine. You see, in other words, he wants to please everybody in terms of their belief in their lifestyle. Not that he's anti-Haredi, but a liberal person at the head of the Israeli government is the most dangerous person to God. Think about that, you know. I'm not talking about from my framework, but from the framework of a contract that the Jews have signed with God. It's one thing you don't want to observe Torah, that's your business. Then you'll deal with God on your own. But to be in charge of millions and millions of Jews and to openly espouse these kind of policy is a death knell in many ways for Israel, in every which way you want to look at it, and so on. <clears throat> in any case, the question is, what does all this mean? If you really think about that. This is the Yamsuf. In many ways, it can go one of two ways. If he wins, or if he's a very important part of a coalition, uh, right? You remember Lapid a couple of years ago? He almost destroyed, again, the same idea. Unfortunately, he was evicted from the government, and so on. But if Gantz, Gantz wins a substantial amount of, uh, of, of votes and seats and so on, and the MKs and the Knesset and so on, <clears throat> he will have a substantial say in the coalition, because he'll probably join and so on, and it's one of the greatest, darkest periods in the Jewish history. It's going to be the equivalent of the reform movement in America. That's what's going to happen. The question is, what's going to happen? That is the question. Because we're not looking here about somebody who's half and half. Netanyahu was also basically an heir of Rav, but he's nowhere near as bad as Gantz. Because he, he uh, Netanyahu will work with the Haredim. You know, he won't do what this guy does. He's not going to destroy Judaism, because in the end he does respect the Torah. I'm not sure about his, what his views are in terms of the divinity of the Torah, but he, clearly he respects the Torah, and he does work with the Haredim, 
and he does try to work with them for whatever, whatever his motives are and so on. But Gantz is an extreme form of Erev Rav. And unfortunately, you know, it looks like he's doing very well. So um, we, what, what is, uh, <clears throat> we have to sit back and it's fascinating. What's God going to do? You see, because it, it, it's no longer in our hands. What you're really looking at is who's going to dominate the Jewish people? Will it be the heir of Rav? Will it be the people who are anti-Torah, anti-agreement with God? Will they dominate the heir of Rav and so on? Or it won't be. It'll be somebody else. That is the question, you see. And it's a question that is critical for the Jewish people at this time. Do not minimize what it means if he walks away with a substantial amount of seats and if he becomes part of the coalition. It's the same thing. It's worse than Lapid. See, Lapid hates the Torah. Uh, Gantz does not hate Torah. I do not believe that at all. I just believe he's pro-everybody. You know, he just wants to remove all the divisions of the Jewish people by granting everybody their wish and their lifestyle. But it doesn't make a difference. In the end, that is a destruction of Klai Yisrael, especially in Eretz Yisrael, you see. And America anyway now is dying. Look, there are 11 million Jews in the world that are gone, completely gone. What's left? Three million Jews that are observant at some level. The last thing you want to see is millions of Jews in Israel also gone. Because I guarantee you, if the reform gets legitimacy, you cannot believe how much money they will invest to destroy the Jewish people in Israel. <clears throat> we don't even know the extent of the damage that these people can do. So the question is, what is it? Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's Kriyas Yamsuf. The Egyptians on one side, the Jews on the other. The problem is, it doesn't look good for the Jews. You see, it looks very good for Gantz, uh, and so on, you know. <clears throat> so the question is, what can possibly be? I will tell you a scenario, which I think may be possible. I'm certainly not saying it can be, because then the question is, what happens? You see? So I'm going to offer a possible scenario. You know, uh, God has not asked me for my advice. Uh, you know, but if he asked me, I would say, I got, a, I got an interesting solution. Let me tell you what I think. What could be? <clears throat> Mandelblit, if he indicts Netanyahu, very likely that will happen. If that happens, it's a volcano that goes off in the Israeli political world. It's a volcano. Because then everything has to change. Right? What has to change? First of all, if he's indicted, he's of course going to want to hang on, you know, even though the law, but there's going to be a tremendous amount of suits against him. How can an indicted prime minister run as a prime minister? That's number one. Number two, <clears throat> okay, he will be tremendously stigmatized. And it doesn't make a difference if you like him or not. To be indicted as a prime minister is a terrible stigma on your reputation. So therefore, it's very likely that people will not vote for him because they don't want to vote for an indicted prime minister. Then another problem is, will the Likud want Netanyahu to actually represent them? Why wouldn't they? Because first of all, it'll be very difficult for him to, uh, to uh, put together a coalition. Because there are many parties that he's part of that may not even make the threshold. So he may have a real difficult time even making a coalition. 
you see, even if the Likud decides to keep him. But besides that, there's something else which is interesting, is that it's one thing if he was indicted, <clears throat> right, and it was possible to put a coalition. But since Gantz is on his heels, right, that's an incredible danger to him, because people may say, what do I need an indicted prime minister for, right? Forget about that. I got Gantz, I got Yahalom, I got a whole bunch of guys, maybe Gabi Eisen, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, Ashkenazi. Why not, you see? So the Likud will become frightened as a result of all these ideas, because now they can't take a chance. Because it's possible that people won't vote for him. He won't be able to put the coalition, Netanyahu, right? And not only that, and Gantz may win. Because they say if Gantz joins with Lapid and all that, he can get more seats than Likud, and that's the end of Likud, right? So then what will Likud do? It's a possibility. They're going to turn to an individual that just got the fourth seat in the MK, uh, as an MK, okay, uh, and th which is miraculous. His name is Gideon Sar. Who is, by the way, a Shema Shabbos. Okay? He's very popular. He's a Shema Shabbos. And he has been out of politics for six years. Not only that, he's not an MK. And he's not a minister. Yet he has won the fourth seat in the Likud. He's very popular. And he's Shema Shabbos. And he's very well respected. In fact, they took a poll saying that if Netanyahu was not running, he would be the most likely person to be in the Likud Prime Minister. It was actual actual poll. So wouldn't it be interesting if the Likud chose him, okay, Gideon Sa, instead of uh, Netanyahu, because of all the risks involved and so on. And that would actually be incredible. And wouldn't it be incredible if what? If he won. Because he's very well respected by the Israeli public. That's an interesting scenario. So in one shot, God would shock the whole Israeli politics because all of a sudden Likud would pick somebody else, Netanyahu is gone, somebody else, and, and God of course can make anybody win. You remember, you know, the thing that America forgot was that, that you know, all the people voting in America forgot one thing. The only vote that counts is God's. Everybody else is irrelevant. You see, even though there's like 300 million people voting, or whatever the vote is, you see? <clears throat> so if God wants to do this solution, it could be an incredible solution, you see? Now, the question is, how would he bring up, change the spirituality of the Jewish people? Well, what's interesting is six years ago, he was the Minister of Education. So he's familiar with that office. He was also the Minister of the Interior. He has a lot of political experience. But if he asked me my opinion, here's what I would say. <coughs> Not, instead of just funding colleges, why don't you just fund also as a government fund, right, because the concept of equality, why not fund all the organizations that do Kirov? Because they're very successful. Think about that, right? They're very successful. I mean, take a look at some of the organizations. The, of course, uh, a main organization, of course, is Yibona, right? If, if, if this gentleman here had more money, Right? Who knows what he could do? Right? Not only him, what about Arachim? What about Chabad? They bring, what about Lev Le'achim? Or Yad Le'achim or whatever, right? All these organizations do tremendous work in Kirov. Their problem is they don't have any money. But what happens if you gave them millions of dollars? And then you have the school systems. You have the Chinuch you have Shuvu. They do incredible amount of work. 
are therefore by funding all these organizations basically educational organizations they wouldn't compel anybody that's not what they do but they would just try to offer a valid argument of why spirituality is better uh, you know than than taking guns and and drugs into the public schools you see <clears throat> they would be enormously successful without compelling anybody to do chupa you see you could raise, I, I maintain, that you could raise the spiritual level of the Jewish people to tremendous heights, you know, without any compulsion. Because the yeshivas do a great job of education. You just check out their schools. And, and if he would remove the barriers of, of the regulations and the bureaucracy that these schools can get buildings and so on, it would be a game changer for Klai Yisrael. That's the first thing I would recommend. I think it's a great recommendation. You know, if he asked me, right? Uh, the second thing I would say is forget about um, the Knesset figuring out the laws. Because this country is filled with bureaucracy, regulations, right? That are choking everybody. And the cost of living is beyond uh, comprehension. It's very difficult to live here. And now, if you want to know what to do about it, here's what I would say. You know, in America, what they do now, and it's a part of the business acumen, is where they, <clears throat> they ask their employees what would you suggest to improve this company? Because guess what? The employees know the best. They know exactly what's wrong with the company and why it's not making enough money. They understand. That doesn't mean that every idea they have would be great, uh, but they have a great handle and that's what's happening in America. Many businesses ask their employees, right, from your vantage point, what do you think we could do to improve? You see? So what I would tell uh, Gideon Sam, it says what you do, put an idea box in front of the Knesset, right? Uh, that anybody who has an idea how to improve Israel, right? Just put in your ballot, so to speak. And you have a committee that analyzes these, these ideas, uh, and they could be brilliant ideas that people can contribute to. You see, in fact, you probably can get more ideas of how to help Israel become an unbelievable nation, right? then the Knesset people themselves can figure it out. Because they have a narrow framework, you see. And people who are part of the population, right, the middle class, the, the lower class, the upper class, uh, they have a very good understanding of what the problem is and why Israel could grow 80% quicker, you see. And they just came out with a poll that 1.8 million Israelis are below the poverty line. This was the statistic of the insurance and so on. <clears throat> Could you believe almost one-third of the country is not at the poverty line, it's below the poverty line. So clearly there's something that has to be done to radically improve the situation. But in any case, you know, in any case, the idea, the key idea to remember is that <clears throat> we are at, in many ways, the home stretch. This is not an average election. You see, we are at the home stretch, we're down to the wire. The question is, who is going to lead the Jewish people in Eretz Yisrael, which is basic to the entire continuity of the Jewish people? Is it going to be the era of Rav? You see, is it going to be people that want to destroy the agreement and the contract that God has with the Jews? Or will it be the religious, the spiritual, will they lead Klai Yisrael? and then create a revolution in spirituality of the Jewish people. It's that tight, and it's right down to the wire. And what we need is what Durbanisham did at, at Kriya Samsov.
We need a Vahana Hapechu. We need a, we need an explosion, <coughs> you know, in Israeli politics that will end the dominion of the era of Rav once and for all, because they have destroyed untold amount of people, reformed conservative reconstructionists in America, and in Israel the Maskilim. We all know what happened in the fifties, right, to the Yemenites, right, and to the uh, whatever the Yemenites. There are so many people that came to the Ethiopian, whatever that came to Israel, and now they are being uh, ferried to what irreligious kibbutzim and so on. Uh, I mean, just walk in Tel Aviv and take a look what what it looks like. It's terrible to watch, you know, what Jews look like. In, in that city, and in general, there are so many Jews that are secular, that do not believe in Torah, and so on, you know. So therefore, that's the question. Who is going to dominate? Is the era of Rav going to continue to dominate and destroy Judaism? Destroy the bond that the Jews have with God? Or will the religious, spiritual people that can change Israel and bring a revolution to Klai Yisrael, will they dominate? That's the issue right now. And that issue is messianic, you should know. It's not Pashat, you know. And we have to hope that the, the decree of God is that the era of Rav's shlita, dominion, over the religion of Israel, the contract, must end. Because they've already destroyed 11 million Jews. We, don't, we cannot even... It boggles the mind, that type of a number, what these people have done, and so on. <clears throat> so that's the question. What happens on April 9th? The good sign is this, is that on April 9th is Nisan, and we know that Nisan, right, the redemption begins in Nisan, you see. Now there are a lot of good signs, hopefully, that something will happen. You know, Iran is falling. Iran, which is one of the most dangerous countries to Israel, is collapsing. They've already lost 70% of the value of their currency, you know, uh, already. And they're having tremendous unemployment problems, obviously, you know, because America's sanctions are killing them. And it hadn't even really dug in yet, because when America says sanctions, nobody's allowed to buy any oil, because they allowed certain companies to buy oil, then it'll really collapse. And that's one of the greatest enemies of the Jewish people, is Iran. But what's even more important, is that Iran, according to the Medrash, was supposed to be the last war. As it says, <clears throat> that in the week that Mashiach bin, bin uh, comes, it says that Iran, Poras, is going to incite a war against Arabia. <clears throat> and then the whole world will be nervous. And it says that Iran will begin to destroy, amazing, the world. And we know how it could be because they have missiles and they threaten Europe and so on. Uh, but what the Rosham did, which is amazing, is he stopped it. He stopped the last war. And by the way, in that war, right before it begins, there's a bus call, a divine voice that comes out and says, The time of your redemption has arrived, which means that this is the end. So if Iran is collapsing, right, then what the Bansham did is he preempted the war from occurring, which is a tremendous sign of the redemption. Which is tremendous. A second incredible sign of the redemption is the rise of Israel among the nations of the world. Israel is no longer a third world country. 
you know, a backwater place, you know. Israel now commands respect in the entire world. Even though they, they, they of course, you know, the, the UN and non-Jews in Europe, they don't want to, they're not going to say they love Jews, but they now respect Israel because Israel is at the forefront of almost every industry. It's astounding that a country of eight, nine million people, right, now is greater GDP than Japan. We have no idea of what, where Israel has come. And that can only happen at the end of time, obviously. Because what God is doing is preparing Israel that the nations will respect Israel because that's what they need and then when the Mashiach comes the respect will be there and then it will just can go up and up and up and so on so Israel must become great among the nations of the world at the end of time and that's exactly what is happening now you see so that's another incredible sign and then of course we have Monsieur Donald Trump uh, and so on because what he wanted what he has done for Israel is incredible you know, legitimatized uh, Eretz Israel, the capital is Jerusalem, and so on. He, sh he's, he sent all the Arabs home, they're no longer in Washington, <coughs> and so on. And he has done incredible thing to le legitimatize Eretz Israel, And that's why, because I had mentioned long time, many times, he's a messianic figure, and Esau is Yaved. One of his tasks was to to uh, persecute the Jews, and now he's going back to Yavoid to help the Jewish people. And it's funny because Ochi, my brother, he's now going to become his brother. Esav, through Trump, is returning to become a brother to, uh, to Klai Israel. Even though the Democrats are going bananas, they are absolutely going crazy and so on, but God will deal with the Democrats, as he usually can, and so on, you know. But right now, there's a tremendous opposition because there's the Sutton is dying and there's an enormous amount of prosecutions against Esau not to help the Jews. But all of this is the end of time, you see. And in the end of time, <clears throat> um, it's going to be of an Ahapechu, like I said, shocking, you know. It's going to be Israel that was so despised among the nations will be the greatest nation on earth. And of course, uh, it's all a result of the the uh, the uh, pr divine divine providence and so on. You know, in any case, we are in many ways at a crossroads. That's what this election is all about. And um, hopefully, something will happen where things will be tremendous for the contract, because that is the essence of the Jew. You know, and uh, as a result of that. Israel, the Jewish people will rise spiritually, which is has to happen. And I mentioned that's what Ikochecho means. God says, I will gather the Jews wherever you are. Doesn't make difference if you're assimilated, intermarried, unaffiliated, doesn't make difference. But the key is I will gather you, but what's critical, and I will take you to me, which means you must restore yourself to the contract. All of you must become spiritual and only then can you greet the Mashiach because the most dangerous man in the world is the Mashiach very dangerous why? because it says in Tehillim and not Tehillim in Yeshayo and it refers to Hine Yaskal Avdi behold my servant will grow wise and the uh, who is that servant? that is Malcolm Mashiach the Targum says is the Mashiach and it says three expressions of growth 
V'yorim, v'nisa, v'gova mi'oid. And the Medrash says, why does it have three expressions by Mashiach? Because the Mashiach in a certain sense is in prison. Not a literal prison, but he's handicapped in the sense that he, he cannot be who he is. What can he be? So V'yorim means he will be greater than Avram Avinu. This is what the Medrash says. It's beyond belief. V'nisa, and he will be greater than Moshe Rabbeinu. Imagine a man walking amongst us who's greater than Moshe Rabbeinu. No, we can't even imagine that, right? And then what's the last expression? Is Vagova Miyoid? He will be greater than the Malochim. Now I ask you, how in the world can you shake the hands of this person? I mean, it's frightening, and so on. Therefore, the Bosham puts him in a situation where he's handicapped in order that he grows, and at the same time, the Jewish people have to grow with him. So therefore, he's not dangerous to the Jews, because both of them have to grow and achieve spirituality, you see? And that's why something has to happen in the Jewish people that will increase the spirituality in order to allow the Mashiach to come. Because the Mashiach is not going to come to Jews that are at Memtesharit Tumah, that are at the lowest form of, uh, of uh, spirituality and so on. And therefore, all this takes time. So that's why it's so pivotal to stop the era of Rav. And uh, in the end of time, that's exactly what happened, has to happen. So let's hope that this year, right, something will happen and Israel will begin to change in an incredible spiritual way and again re-enter the contract with renewed hope and renewed uh, uh, enthusiasm and that God will again, once again, reunite with the Jewish people and usher in the Messianic era. Thank you. <laughs> Any questions? Uh, pa, 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 pa. Okay. Yeah, uh, I just wanted you to comment on what do you think uh, how Trump is going to play in with this proposed Middle East peace plan Trump make uh, Trump makes mistakes, and then he's punished, and it's not the first time. Um, but you have to remember one thing: <clears throat> it takes two people to make a peace plan. The Arabs cannot make peace with Israel. Why? First of all, because Abbas will be assassinated by Hamas, right? The second thing is they are theologically commanded not to pick. They cannot. It's against the Quran. How can you make peace with people you call pigs and dogs or chimpanzees, whatever they call the Jews, right? And, but the third idea is very, also very important, is that if they ever made peace with Israel, it would have to be formalized and internationalized by the UN. If we recognize by the whole world, then what are they going to do? If they attack Israel, then Israel can legitimately destroy them because they are going against international law. So he can't do it, uh, you see. So if he can't do it, what's the point? You see? Who? Well, what does Oslo do really? It's a process. Never did anything, you know. And the ones who are giving back Israel are the heir of Rav. This is the whole problem, you know. Um, but uh, uh, Arabs cannot theoretically, and, they, and, and Oslo, they never made peace. Oslo is not a peace. I mean, because Arafat, after Oslo, killed Jews left and right. Don't you remember? 
uh, Rabin, they assassinated him in 95, right? He kept saying, sacrifice for peace. And of course, he became the ultimate sacrifice for peace, right? And so on. They never made peace at all. They've been killing Jews from day one, since Oslo. What Oslo has done, it's one of the greatest horrendous uh, agreements ever made. You know why? Uh, Oslo destroyed the Jewish claim that Israel is ours. Because Oslo said that we grant you, or we recognize that you have a legal, legitimate right to Israel. What are you talking about? As long as you deny them that right, okay. But once you said that in Oslo, that you have a legitimate right to Israel, right, the territories and so on, then automatically everybody's saying, so to give them back something, give them back half Israel. Whoever engineered Oslo, right, is, well, it's one of the, the, the worst uh, uh, agreements ever made. <clears throat> what was that? It won't happen again. But anyway, uh, but, but anyway, that, that's uh, so. Uh, but uh, peace can never be with the Arabs. The only time it could be is if the Arab needs the Jew. Like Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is collapsing in a certain sense. They're running out of oil, and even if they have oil, it's not worth that much anymore. Uh, so they don't have enough oil to run their economy. Meanwhile, the U.S. has become the greatest exporter of oil. Uh, in the world, which is incredible because of um, <coughs> fracking and so on, you see? So, and, and so he, Saudi Arabia realizes, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, that he's got to change the economy. Most of the economy runs on oil. It's not going to last more than 10, 20 years. And therefore, he wants to become a high-tech place. Well, guess what? Who do you think about when you talk about high-tech in the Middle East? Israel. <coughs> Mohammed bin Salman needs Israel far more than Israel needs him. And not only that, he needs Israel against Iran. <coughs> because the greatest threat to these guys, of course, is Iran. So if anything, they're all fuming against Abbas because he's holding up the progress. Yeah, they're sick and tired of Abbas, you see? And, and so they want to ally themselves, you know, with Israel, which means to share uh, whatever. You know, it's a slow process. But there's no question that it's heading in that direction. What so even if Trump says anything, so what? What is he trying to do? Who, Trump? Why, why, why are you trying to Because that's an ego trip. He has to prove he's the greatest negotiator on the planet. Right? That's what he holds, you know? But he's making a terrible mistake. And one of the punishments that he's getting from God, right? Because he's not lining up the way he should, is the Democrats. Exactly. He doesn't realize something. If if I would speak to Trump, I'd say, "Don't you get it? Uh, you have a messianic role. Why are you botching it up? Because all this is a punishment to you. You want to invest. You want to make. Uh, look, think think about this. What's the uh, what's the main agenda now? The immigrants. They're all coming from Guatemala, right? Why all of a sudden he's having this terrible problem with immigration? Because guess what? The Gazans want to invade uh, Israel and become immigrants of Israel. It's me the connected me, the measure for measure. God says to Trump, I'll show you what it means to allow people in the country that you don't want. And all of a sudden, bam-o, he's got a terrible problem uh, with, you know, Guatemalans and so on, you know. Because that's the me the connected me, the, with Gaza, they're all trying to break into the fence and get in Israel. Uh, and the problem is, Trump should come out and say, cut it out. You can't go into Israel, it's a sovereign nation, what are you doing? But he doesn't say anything. And therefore God says, you need to learn your lesson. It's a punishment, you know, and I hope he gets it. Because the Democrats are on the warpath. 
It's unbelievable what these guys want to do. You know? Yeah, go ahead. Um, you spoke exactly about the various exiles, after the Roman exile, exile Ishmael, and the Jerobrak being the last one. Did you pass through the Ishmael... Uh, what was that? Yeah. You said that there's different... The exile, the Roman <coughs> exile, then there's Galus uh, Ishmael and the Arabrak. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the the goal of Yishmon is ending. Yes, it's ending. Because once they want to join with the Jews, uh, that means they it, it's ending. And besides, most of the Jews in the Arab countries have have left. There's only a couple, you know, in terms of Iraq and uh, you know Iran and uh, Syria. I mean, m- m- enormous amount of Jews have left these countries. So their ability to hold the Jews is ending. You see, and not only that, but they're falling. They're all collapsing. Think about that. You know, between Libya and uh, and Egypt, uh, you know, and Tunisia. And then you have Syria, which is a basket case, right? Lebanon, Iraq. Uh, you know, Iran is collapsing. You know, almost all the Arab nations. Yemen. I mean, Yemen. Forget about Yemen, right? They're all collapsing. That means that the Malach of Yishmoel, the angel of Yishmoel, is having a terrible time. Propping up his nations, he's failing. When you see, it's not here. It means the the angels responsible in heaven are failing to prop up their nations, which means that the Sutton no longer has them. You see, that means that the Ketrugim are being abated, and therefore the merit of Klai Yisrael is growing, because they can no longer attack the Jewish people. That's what it means. These are barometers or indicators of where Yishmol stands in heaven. So anyway. In what was that? that that's their, their power is in Shemayim. Correct. And response to what Am Yisrael is doing here? Correct. So in other words, we're doing a better job. Remember I told you, the contract has two different uh, possibilities. Remember? Either you do the mitzvahs where God goes through the pieces as a flaming torch, or you do the averus and he goes through as Gehenim, which means suffering. Either way, the tikkun will happen. See, so we are doing the job. That's right. Yeah. I took on this in the previous I want you to comment on something that uh, appears to support what you said in the, the, second, the second verse. The second bris? The second bris where, uh, where uh, the pasuk is Oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. The Ramban, there's an amazing one on this. Ramban, not the Ramban, Ramban, says that the reason the Torah uses the word Yakim means it doesn't uphold, but doesn't anything. Okay. Which implies because the 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 who, who, who is still Yakim is called, is called Yeah. But, never, but, but nevertheless, he doesn't, uh, it's not like the conservatives, the <coughs> or others, yeah. who, who, who say, oh yeah, they're, they're 
But this person, these Orthodox, but... Exactly. I, I didn't go... Yeah, the Orthodox themselves are divided. There are people that keep, keep a lot of the Torah, but some of the Torah they don't keep. You know, it, it, it's oh yeah, yeah. I, I just gave the five major classes of members, correct, that okay. what their attitude is toward the agreement. Okay. That was my focus. Okay. Okay. okay? okay. Thank you. Thank you. So, anybody else here? Can you talk a little bit? You talked about the Midrash for um, Iran and uh, uh, Kuchimani. Yes. Um, can you, this is, two, you said about 2,000 years old, do we really know when it was written? Well, it's a medrash that was written 2,000 years ago. It describes what's going on today. Of course, a that's why it's... Whether you're religious or not. Yeah, because they had Ruach HaKodesh. I mean, these people, these people knew what would happen at the end of time. That Iran would again arise. Why? Because Persia, right, was instrumental in building the second base of Migdash. So therefore, they have a merit, you see? So they knew that in the end of time, Persia will again resurrect and try to take over what Persia did many years ago, the world empire, you know, <clears throat> and they will try, of course, the rivalry is with Israel, that they're focused completely on Israel, you know, which is amazing when you think about that, you know, uh, Iran, the whole thing makes no sense. They are such a wealthy nation. They can have their nation being incredible, prosperity and so on. Instead, they're all focused on this nine million people you know that that constitutes less than one quarter or one percent of the world's population like are they crazy what's the point they can bless uh, the greatest enemy of the arab is the arab because they have so much money they can make their nation prosperous wealthy it'd be a gun aiden for these guys you know what i'm saying instead they're focusing billions hundreds of billions of dollars to wipe out a nation that what? What's the problem here? Who cares? Leave the Israelis alone. Don't bother with them. Worry about your own nation. But that's the hatred, you know, the hatred uh, of, the, of the nations for the Jewish people. You know, incredible anti-Semites and so on, you know. Um, whatever, you know. But listen, it's a, it was supposed to be a messianic war, <clears throat> you know. I, I spoke about this at length, you know, before, you know. But um, anyway, it's 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 ending. Uh, this whole concept, you know, and, and so on. Um, any other questions? Yes. Um, so the heir of Rab today are direct descendants from the heir of Rab. No, no, the heir of Rab is not a descendant of anybody. It's an individual that holds that belief system. Okay. And, and that qualifies you to join the heir of Rab. But you have to be Jewish, special. You have to be Jewish. You have to be not believe in the Torah and replace it with something else, obviously, you know. So the Zionists replace it with Israel. It means if you're an Israeli citizen, that's all God wants. Forget about Torah. They've replaced the Torah with being an Israeli, you know. Some people have replaced Torah with gefilte fish, which is the culture. Everybody's got, they got to replace it with something, you know what I'm saying? But the key is that if you are Jewish and you have power and influence, you see, uh, and you are anti-Torah, you are fundamentally Arab, Rav. You know. And then is there a uh, recommended candidate for a Torah observant Jew for the upcoming election, or wait and see? I don't believe so. I'll tell you why. Because <clears throat> the problem is, the, the, the key mission now, you know, is not only to stop the Arab, Rav, but to raise the spirituality among the Jewish people. It's critical, okay? The problem is this. 
that if there's a guy who's a Haredi prime minister, half the people will be turned off. The advantage of Gideon Sa is he's modern. He looks modern. He looks good. You know what I'm saying? So therefore, he has what's called credibility. That's a critical, you know? I mean, um, uh, what would the people feel like if a guy, I'm not saying, I'm just saying this is what I think, you know? If a guy had, uh, you know, a strimal and pais and, you know, beard, and all of a sudden he shows up at one of the prime minister's functions. You know what I'm saying? What are people going to do? They don't even have to relate to the guy. You know, they can tolerate Haredim if they're a small segment in the Knesset. But if he became the prime minister, then they would all say, uh-oh, we are now about to become a theocracy and not a democracy. So you need a guy who looks modern, and yet is Shema Shabbos, he's religious, and will elevate the Torah. You know, every, 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 everybody has its, his credibility and his ability, you know. And I believe that's the, right now, that's the best uh, thing for the Jewish people, to raise their spirituality. And that is critical. You need to remove the amaratsis of Klai Yisrael. That's what you need, because the Jewish people are dying. The, the continuity is terrible, especially in America, South America, Europe. You see what's going on with Europe, you know, and so on, you know. Wherever you look, the, 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 uh, the reign of spirituality is, is in many ways incredibly threatened. I mean, to God it doesn't mean anything because he can turn the whole thing around in one minute. But for us it's a t tremendous threat. The greatest threat to the Jewish people today is Jewish identity and continuity. Period. Everything else is uh, a subset of that. Is that it? Wow. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah.